Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online services. We're looking forward to opening up another venue for our services next week. As Larry said, we're going to be opening up the parking lot for an outdoor service. We're going to continue to provide these services online, but if you want to join us in the parking lot, next Sunday we will be there at 11 o'clock. Now, we just closed out our series in John chapter 8, a series that we called Jesus is. And what we saw there was Jesus made some really clear and serious and significant statements about himself. Jesus called himself the Son of God. Jesus said that he was our rescuer from death, our liberator from sin, and then he said that he was divine. Very, very serious claims about his identity. Now, in the next two chapters, in John chapter 9 and in John chapter 10, which is where we're going right now in our new series, we're still going to learn a lot about Jesus' identities, or Jesus' identity and the works that he performs. But John, the gospel writer, is going to use two themes to kind of highlight this for us in John chapter 9 and in John chapter 10. Now, these are two themes we've seen before in the gospel of John, but for some reason, John really uses these more in these two chapters. These two themes are contrast and controversy. Contrast and controversy. We see contrast, it it kicks off the very start of John chapter 9. We see Jesus contrast himself with the disciples. Uh, We see later at the end of John chapter 9 that the blind man who is healed is really contrasted with the religious leaders. We see in John chapter 10, Jesus will contrast himself again with the false teachers or uh, strange teachers, as he calls them there. We also see much controversy. We see in John chapter 9, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, which was very controversial. We see in John chapter 10 that Jesus says that he's going to lay down his life. He's going to sacrifice himself. Very controversial. And that closes off John chapter 10 with the controversy of Jesus saying that he is one with the Father. He has unity with the Father. So these two themes are really going throughout John chapter 9 and in John chapter 10. So we're calling our series, very cleverly, (laughs) Contrast and Controversy. Well, the first contrast we're going to look at in John chapter 9 is the contrast of perspectives or outlooks or, or how we see things. And this is incredibly important for us to consider. You see, because how we see things changes how we act. So if we don't see things correctly, we're going to act incorrectly and we're going to miss out on opportunities of being effective and having great impact. Let let me give you an example of not seeing things correctly. Recently, during the fires that we had here in our region, my in-law's house was in danger of being, well, burned. And before the fire got really close, I was at my in-law's house, and we were kind of watching what was going on and the scanners and and the news and everything. And my father-in-law mentioned this uh, strategy that honestly didn't make sense to me when he first said it. He said, we may need to light the field next to his house on fire in order to protect his house from catching on fire. Now, that didn't make sense to me. If I was going to drive up to his house and I were to see a, a fire in the field near his house, I would think to myself, we got to put this thing out because I only see fire as a threat. But that's not how my father-in-law sees fire. 
In fact, my father-in-law was sharing this idea with me when my brother-in-law was there, and my brother-in-law is a fireman. And he kind of nodded his head in agreement that this is actually a good idea. So clearly, I was missing something. I wasn't seeing things clearly. I wasn't seeing things like they were seeing things. See, what they were talking about is a strategy called a backfire or lighting a backfire. The, the idea is this. Before the big fire comes with all its speed and momentum and destruction, what you do is you kind of beat the fire to the punch. So it, it, my father-in-law was going to light the field on fire next to him and burn up kind of all that ground, all that fuel, before the fire ever got there. So by the time the big fire came in, and had, it would have no fuel, and it couldn't continue its momentum toward his house. I didn't see that. If, again, that field was on fire, I would have done my best to try to put that fire out, and I would actually have endangered my father's house, or my father-in-law's house, and not protected it. Now, apply this idea to our current situation. Apply this idea to our current season of suffering, our, our current tragedy, right? our, our pandemic, our financial crisis, our uh, political crisis, our disunity as a nation. Take all of that and ask yourself, what do you see? What do you see? Because what you see is going to change how you act. And how you act will determine the impact that you can have. If you don't see our current situation correctly, you're going to respond incorrectly. And then you're going to miss out on opportunities to, to be helpful, to have great impact. If we don't see things rightly, we won't act rightly. So let me just ask you a simple question. What do you see? What do you see in this season? Or maybe more broadly, what do you see when tragedy strikes? What do you see when suffering happens? Do you see agony, pain, cruelty, discomfort? I would say that you should see those things. But there's something else we need to see. And it may sound strange to say this, but we need to see opportunity. Opportunity. And this is exactly what Jesus will try to show to his disciples. Because they're both going to look at something. They're going to see the same exact thing. They're going to see suffering. And the disciples are going to see one thing, and Jesus is going to see another thing. And the difference between their perspective will be a difference of reaction and a difference of impact. And the distance of their actions, the difference between their actions, is incredibly dangerous. And Jesus is worried that his disciples are going to miss out on an opportunity because when they see suffering, they don't see it like he sees it. So as we jump to our passage in John chapter 9, entertain that question in your head. What do you see when tragedy strikes? What do you see when suffering happens. Now here's what I think we're going to see, and I want to summarize kind of the, the main idea of our passage today with the, the big idea for our message. We like to summarize kind of our passage with one big idea. So if you're only going to write down 
one thing, I want you to write this down. So get out a pen or maybe uh, make a note on your phone or maybe even write in the margin of your Bible if you're comfortable with doing that. But I want you to write this one thing down. I want you to remember at least this one thing from our message this morning. And that's this. Spiritual dyslexia is dangerous. Spiritual dyslexia is dangerous. Now let me say, why did I use the word dyslexia? Okay, if there's any of you who are watching this who happen to suffer from dyslexia, I just want you to know I'm with you. I, I, I did not use this term to offend you. I myself am severely dyslexic. I, I learned that when I was very young in about second grade, and I've been struggling with dyslexia uh, from that point on. Well, I struggled with it before, but then I actually knew that I had it in about the second grade. I, I use that term dyslexia because I think it's incredibly helpful for us to understand what's going on in our passage today in John chapter 9. If you're not familiar with dyslexia, dyslexia in a very kind of simple way it is p- people who struggle with putting certain letter sounds in the right sequence. Let, let me give you an example. If you were to see C-A-T, what you would see or what you would comprehend, what you would sequence together, would be the word cat. C-A-T. Now, somebody who has dyslexia, because their mind or their brain is not engaged in the same way as someone who does not have dyslexia, they may comprehend not cat, but tack, T-A-C. Now, why is that? It's because their brain just operates differently. Now, you're both looking at the same thing. Some people who observe people who are dyslexic think that it's actually like a a vision problem, like they need glasses, like are they actually seeing the letters in reverse? Well, that's actually not what's happening. It's not a vision problem. It's a comprehension problem. When they receive that information and they try to push it back out, it just comes out in different ways. That's why C-A-T, when it's pronounced, comes out T-A-C. And cat turns into tack. Why, why is that? Right? Well, what's, what's happening there? They're comprehending something different. And this is what's going to happen in our passage today. Jesus is going to see one thing, and his disciples are going to see another. And this different perspective is incredibly dangerous, has the potential of being incredibly dangerous. Let me show you this. John chapter 9, we're going to see the disciples and Jesus encounter tragedy, encounter suffering. So let's ask ourselves, what are they going to see? First, let's look at the disciples. We're in John chapter 9, starting with verse 1. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What an odd question. I mean, have you ever done this before in your life? Have you ever been maybe driving down the road and you see somebody uh, with some uh, sort of ailment or something, maybe somebody in a wheelchair, or you see somebody with an eye patch on, or you even see somebody walking with a cane. Have you ever asked the person in the car with you, hey, I wonder what sin they committed 
that caused that sort of ailment? Why, why are they handicapped? What did they do wrong? I think it's fair to say that I don't think any of us think like that. I don't think any of us, when we see somebody who has some sort of ailment or disability, we think to ourselves, there must be some sin behind this. What an odd question for the disciples to ask. But it actually wasn't that odd of a question back then. In the first century world, it probably reflects a very common perspective. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, they believed that the gods actually inflicted certain ailments on people because of certain actions that they didn't approve of. Sins, if you will, or, or crimes, or disobedience, or not the proper form of reverence. I read an account where uh, a god cursed a man because he didn't pr uh, give the proper sacrifice, so, he, so the gods cursed him with blindness. Now, this wasn't just true in the Greco-Roman culture. We actually see this kind of idea shared amongst many Jews in the first century world. I came across this very uh, popular Jewish book, not one that's in the Old Testament, but a Jewish book, uh, a Jewish religious book that was popular in the time of Jesus, was written several hundred years before Jesus. And in that book, I found this. And it, it shocked me. And in this book, it said that a woman would only die childless because of her sin. Now think about that. What's that statement saying? That statement is saying, the only reason anybody is ever barren, any woman is ever incapable of having children, is because of her sin. Now that should not sit well with you. That should just feel gross. That should feel wrong. But we know that that was the mindset of not only some of the Roman thinkers at the time, but also some of the Jewish thinkers at the time. So Jesus' disciples' question isn't that odd. It's not that odd. They see sin behind suffering. Now, if we go to the Bible, there is some idea of this. Not like that which is represented in kind of Roman thought, and not like that which was represented in some Jewish thought at the time, but we do see a connection between sin and suffering. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we have the first man and the first woman. And Adam, the first man, is God's divinely appointed representative of all mankind. Of all humanity is represented in Adam. And Adam decides to rebel. He decides to kind of veer away from God's commands. He decides to go off and do kind of his own things, to break God's law because he believes there's good outside of what God would have for him. And in breaking God's law, God curses not just Adam. He curses the ground, and he curses his grandchildren. He curses the fields, and he curses his family. Because Adam was humanity's divine, divinely appointed representative. So when Adam fell, we all fell. And then we all fell under the curse of sin and death. Part of the consequence is suffering, is pain, is, is tragedy, is agony, is, is disease, is really any time 
creation isn't behaving in a friendly way. All of this is a result of the sin of Adam. So there's a sense in which the disciples are correct. They, they should see sin connected to suffering, at least in a general way. But these guys are asking a different question. Right? They're asking, who sinned? What are they looking for? They're not just looking for a general connection. Okay, yeah, Adam fell into sin, and then the world entered into a place of brokenness. We feel that brokenness, so that explains suffering. Now, they're looking for something so much more. They're not looking for a general connection. They're looking for a very specific connection. Not that sin is, is connected to suffering, but an a sin connected to this suffering. They ask is it this man's sin, or is it his parents? Now, there is some support for this in the Bible. There are some times where we do see sin, a specific sin, connected to a specific suffering. In the Old Testament, a story that they would be incredibly familiar with, Miriam, the sister of Moses, would challenge Moses' authority. And God struck her with leprosy. So right there you have a specific sin of rebellion. And God does a specific act of inflicting on her leprosy. A sin, a specific suffering. Now, it seems to be that Jesus' disciples have kind of taken this idea, and now they see a sin behind every suffering. Not just a general connection, but they think like the case of Miriam, Moses' sister, they believe that, that every sin is like this. Every suffering is like this. Now, as odd as this sounds to us, and, and maybe as, as strange as this sounds to us, we do kind of share this idea, I think. If we really pause and reflect for a moment. Or let me ask this question just to kind of show that I think this idea is somewhat connected to us as, as modern thinkers. Right? Let's just ask the question, why would anybody want to see sin and suffering connected? Why would we want to see that? The reason you want to see that is because now suffering becomes more predictable. And it becomes more avoidable. If all sin, or sorry, if all suffering is connected to a sin, well now I have a sense of control over the suffering that I may experience. If I just don't do any big sin, then I can avoid big suffering. We like that sense of control. We like that sense of comfort. This is kind of the baseline thinking that's behind our sense of anger when something bad happens to us and we respond by saying, I don't deserve this. And I'm sure all of us have done that. We've all found ourselves in a moment where we feel like it's unfair that we are suffering in the way that we are. Well, what's the line of reasoning before that thought comes out of our mouth? The presupposition is this. Sin is directly connected to suffering. So there's a sense in which we actually do share at times the same mentality of these disciples. That when they see suffering, they see sin. 
and they see a sin, a specific sin. When they see tragedy, they think somebody did something wrong. Well, this is an incredibly dangerous perspective to have. Why is that? Well, look at the disciples. What are they looking for? Who committed a sin? This man or his parents? They're looking for a verdict, right? They're looking for guilt. They're looking for blame. They have placed themselves in the position of judges, if you will. And they want to know, where do we point the finger? They're not looking to help. They're not looking to serve. They're not looking to have sympathy. They don't seem to have any empathy. Their system, their outlook, their perspective is causing them to be indifferent to this man's suffering. See how incredibly dangerous that is? That's not a perspective that's going to lead to charity, to kindness, to love, to compassion, to help. And Jesus does not share this perspective. Now here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to have a totally different perspective. He's going to kind of contrast their perspective. They see sin behind suffering. When they see tragedy, when they see this man born blind, they think somebody's at fault. Who is it? Jesus is not going to have that same perspective. But here's what he's going to do with the disciples' perspective. Here's what he's going to do with their spiritual dyslexia, if you will. They're seeing the wrong thing. The letters are C. A-T, but they're not saying cat. They're seeing something wrong. They're comprehending things wrong. What Jesus is going to do is this. Jesus is going to try to adjust their view, and then he's going to add something to their view. You see, because part of their view is correct. Part of it. But there's also things in it that are not correct. Let me show you this. Go to John chapter Nine, we're in verse 3. We haven't moved very far, but these first couple verses is where I want to spend a lot of our time because I think they are just packed full of significant truth for us. Let's look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not this man, or th- that this man sinned, or his parents. Now stop here. At first glance, it seems actually very obvious, that first statement. It was not this man, or that this man sinned. I mean, now think. It says that this man was born with blindness. So what would that mean? Well, if it was his sin, then he would have to have sinned in the womb. He was born blind. So somehow, in a very early trimester, this man had to sin. That seems incredibly silly, right, for even the disciples to ask, how is it that a a baby in its mother's womb can sin? Now, we do know there was some speculation by some Jewish rabbis at the time that that you could actually sin in your mother's 
womb. They would refer to Genesis 25 where we have Jacob and Esau kind of fighting in the womb or struggling in the womb. And some rabbis read that passage as saying, look, there's sin that's going on here. But that seems like very um, shaky ground to build a position on. It almost seems very silly that the disciples would ask, well, it must be this man's, this man's sin. But he's born with this ailment. Are you really trying to pin this sin on, and this suffering on, on a fetus? It's, it seems incredibly silly. But they bring up the idea, well, maybe it's his parents. Maybe the parents have sinned, so God is now afflicting them with a child who has blindness. Again, I think on a modern uh, 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 reader's mind, it sounds very uncomfortable. Well, here's what Jesus does. Jesus just totally dismisses this idea. Right? He says in the beginning, it was not this man that sinned or his parents. What does Jesus do there? Jesus kind of severs this idea of saying that all suffering is caused by a sin. That every time somebody experiences suffering, it's due to one specific sin. You lied, now you get lung cancer. Right? That kind of dynamic. Now, I said that Jesus is going to make an adjustment to their view. We have to take what Jesus is saying right here and kind of zoom out and see that see what what Jesus said about sin and suffering. This isn't the only time he's talked about it. Here he says, no, you can't use this term always, in the sense that all suffering is always connected to sin. You, You can't use always. Jesus wants to make an adjustment in the disciples' thinking. You can't say that sin always causes suffering. The adjustment Jesus will make is that sin sometimes causes suffering. A specific sin sometimes causes suffering. I gave you that example in the Old Testament, but let me show you how this is consistent with Jesus' own teaching. In in John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who was lame. And then he interacts with the man after this man has been healed. And listen to Jesus' words. This is John chapter 5, verse 14. Jesus says, it says, Afterwards, Jesus found him, this man who had just been healed, in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. Why should he not sin no more? That nothing worse may happen to you. You see what Jesus did there? Jesus connected the man's original suffering to sin. And Jesus instructs him to not commit sin or he may suffer again. So what is Jesus doing there? Jesus is connecting this man's suffering to a specific sin. Now again, Jesus is not going to do what the disciples, I think, are doing in John 9. He's not going to insert the term always or the word always. That sin, a sin, always leads to suffering or all, all suffering is because of sin. Let me show you this in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus mentions two big tragedies, two big uh, moments and events of suffering. One was a, a kind of a natural disaster, and the other one was a mass murder. 
Now look at how Jesus talks about these tragic events, these tragic events of suffering, and how he speaks how they're connected to the sins of the individuals who were victims of these events. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. This is a reference to when Pilate killed many Galileans. He murdered them, and then he mixed their blood with their sacrifices, or their blood was mixed with their sacrifices. He killed them in the act of, of them giving their sacrifices. Jesus says this, And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans? those who were not victims of this slaughter because they suffered in this way. Look at verse 3. No. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus uses another event, a natural disaster, verse 4. Or those 18. The first victims were the Galileans. Now we have this group of 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. So there was maybe an earthquake or something. This tower fell and 18 people died. Jesus says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem but didn't suffer this fate? They weren't crushed by this falling tower. What does Jesus say? No, no, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying their sin is not connected to their suffering. It wasn't that they were worse sinners than the other people. It wasn't that, they, that God was just waiting behind that tower when, when the 18 finally came across. He said, this is perfect because these are the 18 worst sinners in the town. Now it's time for them to suffer for their sin. No, he, he says, no, that's not how it works. So I think we could see in, in, in Jesus' view, Jesus would view sin and suffering as connected kind of in a general way, as a general consequence of the fall. All sin is connected to the general consequence of the fall of Adam. And sometimes, sometimes a specific sin leads to a specific suffering. But not all the time. Not all the time. And this is backed up by other New Testament authors. We see this when Paul writes. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he tells them, uh, the reason some of you are dying is because you are taking communion incorrectly. So there you have a specific sin and a specific suffering. We also see this in 1 Peter. Or 1 Peter kind of gives us a description of when suffering is not connected, not connected to sin, but actually connected to obedience. Look at this. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 17. It says, For it is better to suffer. So here we're talking about suffering. But look at why. Look at why Peter says suffering may happen. It's not because of sin. What would cause this suffering? For it is better to suffer for doing good. For doing good. Now, obedience is the cause for suffering. And not a sin. If that should be God's will. So you see that Jesus needs to make an adjustment. Guys, you're not seeing this correctly. 
when you see suffering and you see tragedy, you have to see a specific sin, and you see behind all suffering a specific sin. And Jesus says, that's not correct. That's not correct. It's not that this man has sinned. It's not that his parents have sinned. Jesus is saying, not all suffering is caused by a specific sin. That's true sometimes, but not all the time. But Jesus would acknowledge there is a sense in which all suffering is because of the general connection to Adam's fall. But I said Jesus has to make an adjustment and an addition. Because Jesus is going to see something else. He says, guys, you need to see. You need to see more than sin. You need to see opportunity. Opportunity. Look at what Jesus wants to add to their view when they look at this man's suffering. Again, verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What is he saying there? The reason this man is suffering is not because of a specific sin. Yes, it's the general consequence of the fall, but the reason this man is suffering from blindness from birth and we are encountering him is so that God can show off. Right? But that the works of God might be displayed. The reason he is blind is so that God can show off his power. Now, we want to be very careful when we read this verse not to read it too simply. We don't want to read it and take this kind of idea. God created this man blind simply so he could show off. And that's it's, it's, it's a too, too simple of a reading here. We, we've got to add a little bit more there because we need to see this man's blindness as a general consequence to the fall of Adam. We need to see this in the context of Considering the sinfulness of mankind, the fallenness of mankind, the brokenness of this world since sin entered in through that one man in Genesis 3. We also need to see the sovereignty of God, the control of God. God has allowed this to happen to this man for a reason. So how do we collide these two ideas? The the sinfulness of man, the fallenness of this world, Adam's sin and its consequence, and God's control, God's sovereignty, God allowing this. I think we could actually kind of put those two ideas together in a very simple sentence when we look at this man's suffering. We could say this. God permitted something that did not please him for a purpose. God permitted something because it was the general consequence of the fall. This man experiences the suffering, the ailment of blindness because the world is broken. So God permitted that to happen. And it does not please him. He doesn't take joy out of this. He's not happy about this man's agony. But he does it for a purpose. Let me show you how that sentence, I think, stands up to the rest of Jesus' teaching. Let me just show you one occasion and one experience of Jesus where I think we can actually see this, that God permits things that do not please him for a purpose. We see this just a couple chapters from chapter 9 in John chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. 
In John chapter 11, verse 4, or John chapter 11 is all about the death of Lazarus. First he is sick, and then he dies, and then Jesus Christ resurrects him. It's an awesome chapter. But at the beginning of John chapter 11, we see this. Look at this. In John chapter 11, verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, that's that he was sick, Lazarus was sick, he said, this illness, this sickness, this suffering, this tragedy does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What is he saying here? There is purpose from this pain. There is purpose from this tragedy. There is purpose from this suffering. God is going to show off. But then the shortest verse in the Bible, John chapter 11, verse 35. We see that this does not please Jesus. He sees that God has permitted this for a purpose, but this does not mean that he takes pleasure out of his friend getting sick. He takes pleasure out of his friend dying. He takes pleasure out of his sisters grieving. Look at this. John chapter 11. I'll read verse 34, then 35. Verse 34 says, And he said, Where have you laid him? At this point, Lazarus has died. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus, now seeing where his friend lay dead, the shortest verse in the Bible, it says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept grieved. Jesus was sad. Jesus was not pleased. He felt discomfort. He felt disdain for the moment. He was not pleased with it, excited about it. And yet he still saw purpose in this pain, purpose in this tragedy. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. God has permitted this pain that does not please him for a purpose. And you need to see this purpose. You need to see opportunity. This should be your obsession, is what is God going to do with this? It is appropriate to grieve. It's appropriate to feel pain. It's appropriate to see agony. It's appropriate to call moments cruel. It's appropriate to be angry at tragedy. It's appropriate to feel mad. It's appropriate to mourn. All of these feelings of displeasure are appropriate when a suffering happens. But we have to see more. We have to see opportunity. That suffering gives God a stage to show off his power. And what does Jesus do? He does exactly that. Jesus sees things correctly. He sees C-A-T and says, cat. Jesus doesn't have spiritual dyslexia like his disciples. He comprehends the situation, responds accordingly, and he does a miracle, and that miracle has great impact. Now, before we get to that miracle, look what Jesus says in verse 4, because I think it is significant to see. Verse 4, we must work The works of him who sent me, while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What is Jesus saying here? Hey man, I came here to work. Night is coming, and I think Jesus is referring there to his crucifixion. There's going to be a time where it looks like darkness 
overcomes me. The moment of my death, the moment of my crucifixion. Now, we know that would only be a temporary moment because he was resurrected again. But Jesus is saying, hey, there's a time here, a time that I have, and there's an urgency that I have, that there are works I need to do. I need to show off the power that I have. I need to show my divine power. I need to, to, to give God glory. I need to do the works that honor my Father. I need to do them now because I'm about to die. I'm on a time schedule, and there's an urgency that I have, and I need you to see things correctly. I have work to do. But notice what Jesus said at the very first, the very first word that Jesus said in verse 4. Jesus says what? We must work. Wait, we? Now, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here that, yes, Jesus does heal this man who was born blind. But Jesus does it. Jesus. And yet in verse 4, Jesus doesn't say, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. No, he doesn't say that. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me. Why does he say we? Why does he include the disciples? We'll see later that the disciples do nothing in this miracle. They do nothing. They're not, you know, Jesus' assistants in this miracle. They don't like hand Jesus something so he could perform this miracle. Jesus does it all on his own. So why does Jesus use the word we? Here's why I think it is. is because Jesus wants them to have the same perspective. He wants them to join in this very opportunistic view of suffering. This optimistic view of suffering. That yes, it's, it's terrible. It's awful. It's agonizing. It's wrong. It's cruel. It's painful. It's sad. But there's more than that. God has permitted this pain that does not please him for a purpose. A pain that does not please us for a purpose. And Jesus is saying, you guys got to see this. Why? Because you have work to do as well. And if you don't see things correctly, you're not going to act correctly. And if you don't have the right perspective, you're going to miss out on the work. And if you miss out on the work, then you miss out on the impact that's going to happen. All right, watch the impact that just unfolds. Let me just kind of read to you kind of the rest of the story of this man's healing to show you the impact that happens because Jesus acted correctly because he had the right perspective. He saw things clearly. Verse 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as begging were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others said, No, but, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am he. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus. He made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. 
Then he said to them, where is he? And he said, I don't know. He was still blind after Jesus sent him, so he couldn't direct them to Jesus. But he witnesses to Jesus' divine power, and he causes spiritual curiosity to grow amongst his neighbors. They start asking questions. This has got to be the guy. Clearly this is a guy. We know this guy. Some are bewildered, like, well, maybe it's a twin. It's somebody who resembles him. It looks like him. But how could it be him? How could he receive sight? What was the impact of this work that Jesus performed? People started to ask questions. Spiritual curiosity was provoked. People started to seek out the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. But even more than that, at the very end, of John chapter 9 ends this way in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, so now he's reunited with the man who was born blind, but he healed. Jesus says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Remember, this man has ever, never actually seen Jesus. Because he went away blind, and it was till he washed that he then saw. And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Listen to this. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. What's the impact of the miracle? The man born blind worships. He confesses Jesus as Lord. This man's eternity is changed. His, his village, his neighbors are now spiritually curious, and this man comes to worship Jesus Christ. Now, now, now do this for me. Just imagine the story in a different way. What if things were reversed? What if Jesus had spiritual dyslexia? Right, what if he had the same perspective as his disciples? What if Jesus only saw sin behind this man's suffering? A specific sin behind this man's suffering? How would the story be different? How would the story be different if Jesus only saw sin, a specific sin behind this man's suffering? Would that perspective not lead to indifference? I mean, I could just imagine the story being completely different. Uh, Jesus and the disciples, I could see them just kind of walking by this man. And maybe mumbling under their breath to each other, well, look, at least he's getting what he deserves. Praise God, he is just. This man is suffering for his sin. It's a big suffering, so it must be a big sin. How different would the story be? There'd be no miracle. There'd be no curiosity amongst his neighbors. The man would not come to worship Jesus Christ. Do you see why spiritual dyslexia is so dangerous? When we don't see things correctly, we don't act correctly. And then we miss out on the opportunity of great, significant spiritual impact. So, so let's go back. Let's go back to that question I asked you in the very beginning of the message. What do you see when you see suffering? What do you see when you see tragedy? 
What do you see in our current pandemic? Our current economic crisis? Our current disunity? What, what do you see? Is it time to put on the judge's hat? To hit the gavel? To put on the robe and the weird wig? Find out who's to blame? Find out who's guilty? Find out who's sin? Is that all you see? Now it's true. Is sin behind suffering? Yes. Yes, in a general way it is. Sometimes in a specific way. But if all we're looking for is sin, a sin behind suffering, then we are missing something. One, the connection isn't like that. A specific sin and a specific suffering all the time. It's not like that. But we need to see more than that. We need to see that God has permitted this. Something that does not please him. God is not pleased at what we're going through right now. But he has permitted it for a purpose. And we must be obsessed about that purpose. Why? Because this is an opportunity for what? For us to serve and God to show off. Spiritual dyslexia is dangerous because we could miss out on spiritual impact. So as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, how should this shape kind of our, our week? I think we need to really evaluate our perspective. Really evaluate how we see things. Really ask ourselves some, maybe some tough questions and say, how am I seeing this? Am I seeing this like Jesus is seeing this? Am I only seeing sin? Or do I see opportunity? I just came across this study a, a, a couple months ago. And it was a study about spiritual receptivity. When, when people are most receptive, when their ears are most open to a spiritual conversation. It's a very entertaining study. And they use this scale, this scale called a, a, a stress scale. And the study basically said this, the higher stress that somebody is going through because of a stressful or transitional event in their life, the higher the stress, the more likely they are to be spiritually receptive. So whatever life event has happened, if it's more stressful, then they're more likely to have their ears be open. Now, now it didn't say that they're more likely to be convinced. That wasn't the point. But it said they're more likely to hear. They're more likely to be open. They're more likely to be friendly to a spiritual conversation with a friend or a family member. So on this list, and they had several of these lists of events in life, and then they actually gave them numbers. And the idea was that you would total up the numbers to see the kind of full weight and impact of the stress on somebody. So let me give you some of the top ones, the, the top stressful kind of events in somebody's life that would make them more receptive to a spiritual conversation. Death of a family member was way up there. A severe personal illness. The severe illness of a family member. Job loss. The changing of financial status. Right? Economic unheaval in the home. Personal financial crisis. Those were like some of the top 
ones. Now, the idea in the study was also the more of these events you're experiencing, you add up those numbers, you kind of compound the stress. Now, just think about that for a moment. Just the ones I listed. Death, illness, job loss, financial crisis. Millions of Americans, millions of Americans have experienced some of the most stressful things that can happen in their life during this season. What does that tell you? That tells you that maybe that friend or family member who you have tried, you have tried to have a spiritual conversation with them, and every time you try, you just don't get very far. That means something may change. That means the spiritual soil in their heart may be churned up by God right now. That spiritual soil may be incredibly fertile, incredibly friendly to a conversation with you about the hope of Jesus Christ. What an opportunity. My challenge to you this week is to pray two things. Is to pray, Father, please make those around me more spiritually receptive than ever. Father, make those around me more open to a conversation than ever before. And secondly, Father, help me see, help me see suffering like Jesus. Help me see it as an opportunity, an opportunity for significant spiritual impact. Now, maybe you're watching this and you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. You want to call yourself a Christian. You may feel better defined as somebody who's spiritually curious. Maybe you're looking into Jesus. Maybe the stress in your life has brought you to, to this moment. Maybe you responded to a friend to say, hey, check out my church. They have some online services. And so you're here and you're watching this. I want to encourage you during this season to see design and not chaos. In this season of suffering, to see intention and not an accident. And what do I mean by that? When I say design and I say intention, don't hear, I'm not saying that God is pleased with our suffering. I'm not saying that. God has permitted this suffering as a general consequence of our sin. He has permitted a consequence of our sin, our fall into sin, this broken world that we are in. Since Genesis chapter 3, he has allowed the general consequence of sin to happen, and he has permitted it for a purpose. And what is that purpose? Just like in our passage, the purpose is that the works of God might be displayed. And what was the greatest work in the passage in John chapter 9? The greatest work wasn't the miracle of the man being made to see. The greatest miracle is the man began to worship Jesus, to call him Lord. I encourage you to see design in this season, purpose in this season, 
The design of this season right now is for your belief. For your belief. And what do I mean by belief? I mean very simply the Bible defines it. In Romans chapter 10 verse 9, it says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, exactly what the blind man did, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. That's what we're talking about when we say belief. Is you would confess Jesus as Lord. That means you would make him the boss of your life. You would believe that he is the one that should be at the front and center of your life. That he gets the steering wheel. He makes the calls. He's the one you follow. And that you would believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That means believing in your heart. At the center of who you are, you believe Christ died and rose again. And why did he do that? To pay the penalty for your sin. He died for your sin, rose again, showing that he had overcome that penalty. That he had taken it all on and now has victory over sin and death. That's what we talk about when we talk about belief. Confess him as Lord and believe that he died and rose again. And I pray you'll come to that point of believing in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the one who died for you and rose again. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, that things are not out of hand, at least not out of your hand. They are very much out of our hands, but not your hands. So, Father, we pray that we would see and rest in the fact of your sovereignty, your control. You are king. You are over all of this. Yes, it's a mess, and it does not please you. And just Christ, as you grieved at the tomb of Lazarus, you weep with us right now. But you permitted this pain, this season, for a purpose. Father, I believe that purpose is that many may come to know your Son as Savior. Father, help us to see that. Give us hope as followers of Christ. Make, make us optimistic, opportunistic. Help us to see more than sin, but opportunity. For those that are listening who don't yet know you, Oh, Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would confess Christ as Lord, and they would believe that he died and rose again for the forgiveness of their sins. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us. I look forward to seeing you again here on Sunday or in our parking lot next Sunday at 11 o'clock. Thanks for watching, guys.